Hello and welcome everyone to Now That's Interesting. I'm your host, Serge. And I'm your other host, Travis. Travis, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. I'm glad to be back in the recording studio after a little hiatus. Again. Again. <laughs> Again. It's like we can't get this thing to keep going, can we? Yeah. Life gets in the way sometimes. It does. It does. Yeah. But it, it's, it's a lot of fun. We're enjoying ourselves. Uh, we're, we're getting on to some lovely topics. Uh, this is one of my... One of my favorite things to talk about, what we're going to go into today. Today and the next. And the next one. Yes. We have a bunch of amazing topics lined up for the next couple of months. So we hope you'll enjoy. But this is a special one. This is a very special one. I think this one is a first. This is a first, yeah. Yeah. We're going to look back on this and go, that's when it started, when they started inviting people to come talk on their podcast. (laughs) And now he spoils it. Yes. So today we have an expert that will share some light on the topic that we cover. Yeah, which is nuclear power. Which is nuclear power. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the state of it now and kind of the history, you know, we talked a little bit about like how things evolved to this point and kind of yeah. where we're going. Yeah. So sit back, relax. I hope you enjoyed the interview and we will come back to you in a bit. First of all, Daryl, thanks a lot for your time and energy for tonight. Thank you, Sergio, for inviting me. I always like talking about my job and nuclear energy in general. That's good because we like to talk about it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes, especially when we're drunk. Yes. Let's work on that a little bit, shall we? (laughs) All right. Before we jump in, Daryl, tell us about yourself, where you're from, and what do you do for a living? I'm from Moldova small country in Eastern Europe. But uh, right now, uh, well, for some time, actually, I live and work in France. I'm a nuclear safety engineer, and my work focuses on nuclear accidents, severe nuclear accidents. That's my speciality. Now, that's nice, nuclear accidents. (laughs) And (laughs) what has there been one? Has there been an accident that you've had to be a part of, or is it just a preventive thing? It's both preventive and mitigation. Basically, what I do is I study potential, I I simulate nuclear accidents that can occur on civil reactors. And I look what the radioactive releases in the environments are. So depending on on the state of the plant, on the type of the accident, uh, the release can be more or less important. And Mm -hmm. so the consequences for the populations will be different and the response will be different for the authorities. Gotcha. And so you you simulate things like what? Earthquakes, hurricanes, uh, massive geological events, or is it just somebody forgot to flip, flip a switch? <laughs> <laughs> it can be both. We don't simulate the earthquake per se, but we assume, for example, there was an earthquake and this knocked off the power supply. So gotcha. th- that's our initiating event. This is a kind of accident, loss of offsite power. Well, for example, what happened at Fukushima, among other things. among a tidal wave coming in there yes so we have an initiating event and we have a special computer code called aztec which simulates the unfolding of an accident from the initiating event up to the release in the environment and it simulates all kind of phenomena and uh, 
physical, chemical, uh, core degradation. It's quite complex and uh, but and very de detailed. Yeah, I gotcha. Interesting. But basically, when you say you are focused on nuclear power as an expert in accidents mitigations or prevention, uh, we're talking about nuclear fission, right? Not yes. fusion. Could you tell our audience what is the difference between uh, fission and fusion so that they know what we're talking about? Yes. So, well, uh, nuclear energy is a way to, well, one of the main uses and uh, is to produce electricity. And uh, it comes from the nuclear energy, from the energy of nuclear reactions. But there are two types of nuclear reactions that produce energy. There is the fission, which is when a heavy at uh, atom like uranium or plutonium is split in half and uh, liberates energy by breaking it. And there, there is fusion, which is obtaining energy by combining two light atoms, uh, hydrogen, uh, typically and uh, which can be achieved on Earth, into a heavier atom and uh, during which we also release energy. So one is a breaking of atoms and the other, and fission, and fusion is a com combination of atoms to make a heavier atom, also with the liberation of energy. Basically, f uh, fusion is what ha happens in the core of a star. Exactly. And, and fission's what we figured out first. Yes. <laughs> it's easier to split a large thing into two than it is to force two things that don't want to be together to be together. Uh, it, pretty much it comes, down, it comes down to this. Yeah. yeah. Nice. The reason we wanted to talk about this, obviously, uh, we all follow all the reports like the CCPI report regarding climate change and so on. Editing room search here. Sorry for the quick cutout, but I just wanted to correct myself because I meant the IPCC report, not CCPI, or otherwise known as the Climate Change Performance Index. Sorry for that. Back to the show. And we see that our world needs different alternatives to power ourselves. And right now, most of the world runs on fossil fuels. And one of the reasons for that is a lot of fear around nuclear power. What we wanted to ask you, in your opinion, why is there such a large number of critiques of nuclear power? And do you think, in general, are there actually called for, or it's mostly just a misunderstanding of the populace? Well, both are true. To answer the first part of the question, uh, why there are so many critiques, first of all, it has not always been the same. When radioactivity was first discovered at the beginning of the 20th century and its potential use, people were literally going nuts about radioactivity. It was used everywhere without any proper risk analysis. It was used in baby diapers because it kept the diapers warm. It was used in a lot of everyday stuff. And then as science accumulated more knowledge about radioactivity and nuclear energy in a larger sense, we came to understand that there are health hazards, so uh, we, uh, we started to apply it more properly. But I think, in my opinion, what flipped the social perception is the development and the use of nuclear weapons. Because mm -hmm. uh, like in, in a second, in two days, in a couple of minutes, you raise two cities of, of the face of the earth. 
So I think was the first big alarm sign. And uh, I think the second one was when the first big accidents, uh, at least the ones that were communicated, uh, for instance, Chernobyl, which had a measurable and noticeable impact on the environment and on the populations. And the problem with uh, radioactivity is that it is unseen. Gamma rays, alpha particles, beta particles, which represents radioactivity, which is the definition basically of radioactivity, all these particles that compose the radioactivity, you, we cannot, you, can, you cannot see them with the naked eye. Uh, you can smell a gas leak. You can see a train uh, coming at you at speed, but you can't, you can't feel, can't see, you can't smell radioactivity. And it can be much more dangerous than, well, it is as dangerous as any other natural or industrial man-made hazards, be it chemical or mechanical. But the problem is that for the first time, it's a danger that we cannot perceive uh, with our natural senses. So I think mm-hmm. that's where the the fight comes from. And uh, of course, there are risks of nuclear energy, of using uh, nuclear energy and uh, radioactivity in a larger sense. But this is true for almost all uh, human activity. You take a risk when you drive your car, you take a risk uh, when you take the plane, you take a risk, I don't know, eating too much and uh, not doing too much sport. Everything is a risk and it is uh, what is important, what it is used in industry generally, the notion of risk acceptability as society. And the society, at least now, considers that the nuclear energy has greater risks than it brings benefits. Although, mm-hmm. uh, although people still uh, consider that cars are worth taking the risk, uh, despite having much more car accidents and much more people suffering from car accidents than from nuclear accidents. That's a, that's part of the, the question, isn't it? Is that we, because we can't perceive nuclear radiation, yes. and it's something that we can't, that's not tangible, I would say there's misguided worry in some ways, right? Exactly. Uh, we used to do things, there's a very similar thing. It was, I'm, I'm remembering that when we first invented x-rays, everyone was getting x-rayed, right? People were doing them in parties. They were having this. Exactly. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until much later that we realized we were actually damaging people. Yes. <laughs> you know, they were actually I, uh, I know uh, at the beginning of the 20th centuries, they were using x-rays to measure the foot size at a, uh, not a tailor shop, but the... the uh, oh, yeah, for shoe shopping. For shoe shopping. Yeah, and, and that's... You know, then, then of course we discover, yeah, you probably shouldn't be doing this. Uh, over, you know, overexposure is bad. And in, but yet, like you said, we'll get into a car and drive because that's something we feel like we have control over. Yes, exactly. Despite the fact, despite the fact that we don't have control over everyone else that's <laughs> yeah. in the. Uh, yes, exactly. And everybody knows about the dangers of nuclear energy, and have a very vague opinion, or often a misguided opinion or knowledge about the benefits of the, nu- the nuclear energy, because uh, well, we don't just use it just because, especially in the modern world, uh, everything which is done has to bring profit, sadly to say, but it's basically how the world runs. Nuclear power plants run because they are cost, well, the electricity is, uh, they are cost efficient or in, the, in the very long term, but there is also uh, radiotherapy. In France, uh, treating cancers with radiation is a, I wouldn't say common practice because I don't really know, but it's not unheard of. It's quite widespread. Uh, we have research reactors which produce the um, Pacific radioactive material acquired by the hospitals. It's used industrially not only for um, 
also to the radioactivity in general, not only to produce electricity, but also to make pipe inspections to detect any faults. This is very common. And uh, it's also... I didn't know that. It's also, yeah, me neither. And it's also source <laughs> for accidents. It has to be said. Ah, yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, there's this is be a place where it's less controlled. Yes, say, and in people are less, less aware they're in the nuclear field. Ah, yes. Yeah. It, yeah. Is also yeah, that's used, uh, it is also used in decontaminating products, uh, or, or more specifically sterilizing agricultural pro from produce and the uh, food, because the radiation kills the bacteria, well, oh, living yeah. organisms. Uh, it's also a source of uh, accidents. Uh, <laughs> and obviously yeah, I, it's used I, in research. Yeah, I've heard I've heard about the, the the health benefits. There's some targeted cancers that get uh, because you can be more um, directed exactly uh, when you're when you're when you're blasting with the radiation. Yeah, you 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 focus a thin radiation beam on the cancer or on the spot on the affected cells, and that's how you, well this is how it's used. Um, I yeah. mean, uh, and yeah, this is one way to use. It, but there are well, there are basically two ways, but. It is used in medicine, and uh, I don't know the statistics, but presumably it saves lives. So uh, there are benefits, there are inconveniences, and uh, it's just a risk-benefit assessment, as always. And uh, in a more larger sense, it's a risk acceptability by the society. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there was actually a very interesting meta-analysis done a couple of years ago where they calculated that, uh, on average... Um, nuclear power kills roughly 0.07 people per <coughs> one terawatt hour produced, whereas uh, burning coal kills 32 people per year, per, uh, for, sorry, 32 people per terawatt hour per year. I must have crossed these numbers uh, as well. Of course, uh, fossil uh, fuel uh, burning kills people. Uh, by the afterburn uh, products that it generates, uh, particularly maybe not as much the CO two, but particularly the soot and uh, different different uh, solid particles, which we then inhale, and well they deposit in the lungs. And uh, well, I'm not expert uh, a doctor, but this is the way it goes. Yeah, pollution definitely causes, and in, even if it doesn't kill, it can cause oh. uh, a terrible sickness. Yes, and um, but yeah, long uh, especially long term or chronic diseases. Yep, I actually listened to or saw research that was done around intelligence that the higher level the pollution that is being created th through like manufacturing and things like that correlates to a lower level or a higher instance of, of poverty. Mm. And that even when you may like uh, uh, hold certain things constant, like the fact that poor people live in dirtier areas because they're poor and can't afford to leave. It, there's also a, 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 it's clearly a cycle that the more there is pollution, the more poor the area becomes. And I think once you start to, it's it's kind of in the same ballpark as nuclear radiation, where it's it's so far removed. Like when you actually get sick, you know, you're not being shot, you're not being stabbed, yes. right? It's something that's happening. And then the event happens much, much later that you're affected by it is a reason why we can kind of completely ignore it. You know, we don't really fully understand, like you said, nuclear radiation doesn't immediately kill you. It has a longer term effect. The same thing is true with pollution. And because of that, we're unable to connect the danger of um, fossil fuel burning 
then that unlike what we can when we see a nuclear bomb go off, right? We can see the bomb is bad and you know, that's let's stay away from that. Yeah, you can see the mushroom. Yes. <laughs> and then you can feel the mushroom. You can it's then, bit, and then you don't feel anything. It's a bit more complicated than this because uh, when a nuclear bomb detonates, people at uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, well, it's a bit weird to say, but the lucky ones, they were killed by the, by the blast, not by the radiation. days or weeks. In, let's say, medium doses, we know that there is the risk of cancer. The higher the dose, the greater the probability. But it's, but it's always a probability. The problem is with lower doses, with very small doses of uh, radiation. And the research is contradictory. Some say it's uh, the same effect as uh, medium doses, well, uh, just a lower probability. Others say it's even good for the cells, for the organism a little bit of radiation. Others say it's more dangerous, so it's not a linear uh, dependency, but a logarithmic or something like that. So the lower dose is it's where it's a bit foggy and not very clear. But then again, there are places on Earth where there is naturally more radiation than in other places. And there are people which live in these places. For example, in, the, in India, in the Kerala, Kerala region, the natural radiation uh, is higher than the authorized working dose in France by about uh, two or three times. And it's natural and it's natural radiation. People have lived there for thousands of years. They don't have any particular predisposition to develop cancer or maybe it's dissimulated. And another thing with cancer, it is in fact impossible to distinguish a cancer provoked by radiation from another one provoked by smoking, for example. Because the damage at the cellular level is the same. So if you are a passive smoker, or if during five years you received very small amounts of radiation, and, and if later you developed cancer, it would be impossible to tell uh, which contributed uh, for how much. Yeah, you can't really track down the, exactly. <laughs> the, the radiation. No, that, uh, that's to, interesting. To speak, at your, to speak to your point, there's actually in Greece... There are these black sand areas, which exactly. are higher, higher in radiation. And people for thousands of years have actually been burying themselves in the sand nope. because it's reported to have health benefits. It reduces aches and pains and all this sort of stuff. But they don't, I mean, whether they get lots of cancer, I don't think that that's true. So it's there. It is very, and it's interesting because we also have a background radiation that's always constantly hitting yes, all of exactly. us. Yes, exactly. Well, we have the Earth radiation from the all the uranium and thorium, which is in the mantle. And there's uh, most of our natural radiation comes from outer space, only, in fact. Yeah, from cos cosmic rays, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And as far as I know, you also get a, a little bit of radiation, like a small dose when you eat a banana, because it's, it's high in radioactive potassium. It contains radioactive potassium. But not, uh, I mean, it, 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 it what makes it's part of the natural uh, background. Yeah, yeah. It's not in any way more radioactive than any other natural thing. Uh, we have uranium in our uh, naturally occurring uranium in our bodies, 
uh, I don't I know exactly some micrograms or maybe uh, milligrams is a bit much, but uh, it's there nonetheless. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, well, that's because and and, and I mean evolutionarily speaking any organism that is going to evolve on a planet where there's enough background radiation has to develop some mechanism oh, to handle, yes, exactly. you know, this sort of thing. So we've got mechanisms, cellular mechanisms that repair DNA exactly. and keep us sort of back. So there, it's, it's when you overcome those natural uh, mechanisms that you start to have disease or sickness, or like you said, a, a death <laughs> is the way it goes. Yeah. Interesting. Life in general is considered like a sexually transmitted disease, uncurable, and it's lethal. Yeah, <laughs> 100% fatal. 100% fatal. Um, but moving on to this point, since we're talking about all the dangers and what is the actual risk mitigation zone, do you have like your favorite misconceptions like, that people throw around when, when they talk about the dangers of radiation? Like, have you ever heard like something that is almost anecdotal to, to the point that makes you laugh. I've probably heard it many times and different facts or opinions uh, thrown around. I don't know if I recall one specific, specifically linked to nuclear electricity, but the one that strikes me, I used to get asked more when I was uh, younger, but when I spoke to my friend and I told them I work in nuclear energy domain, almost, almost all of them asking me, some of them, probably jokingly, but not all of them. And they will ask me, do you make the bomb? <laughs> and uh, it, uh, yes, this, yeah, uh, making a bomb. this uh, well, this makes me laugh because nuclear energy is a very vast domain, even though it's well quite small. It comes back to what I talked earlier is that when people hear about nuclear, their first, the, well, when they hear about nuclear, the first thing that pops in their head Bomb, nuclear, yeah, the, the, the nuclear mushroom. And, yeah, yeah. Quite a lot of times people were asking me, do, do we make the bomb? So yeah. it, it always amuses me when they ask me that. Uh, of course, I am. It's, I, it's, I work in nuclear safety and so on and so on. But. but it's worth saying that there is a big difference between making a bomb and making a nuclear reactor, right? Like these are maybe the elements, there are parts and pieces that are the same, but... And I know that when you're, um, what is it called when you, the ability to refine the uranium to a point where it can be used in a nuclear reactor. Yes, uh, that, yeah, refining, uh, enrichment. Enrichment, enrichment. Yeah. yes, there you go. That process is related to the way that bombs are made. Yes, exactly. But the actual, <clears throat> but the, the rods and things, the where how it goes into the system and what it's doing in there, not even close to being able to make a bomb. Right? Uh, no, well, it depends on the reactor. Some specific research reactors, which are very small typically and only use a couple of kilograms of fuel, they can be highly enriched uh, with uranium, which can be classified as military grade. But uh, there are less and less, uh, at least in France, there are less and less of these kinds of reactors. And uh, there are fewer and fewer people who can produce this kind of fuel. So, Travis, what do you think about it? I, I love this conversation because it really hits home to me on a lot of stuff because we, you know, I think you mentioned it at some point that the number of deaths caused by not moving forward with nuclear. Yeah. 
it's higher than what nuclear has actually caused, you know? And, and this misconception that we have is, yeah, it's really sad because we need to move forward. We need to, 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 to solve some of the problems and you can't because people bring these, uh, some of the great examples, the, they don't want to build these plants in my backyard. They're not in my backyard yeah, uh, yeah. argument about a lot of these things. And we really can't, we can't afford that anymore, right? We don't have time to be, uh, to be messing around <laughs> with this sort of like, I don't like the look of, you know, the, the stacks, the nuclear stacks. Um, but you also, you've got policymakers can't move forward with a lot of things because of this exact argument. And it's all emotion-based stuff. We, yeah. we, need, we need evidence-based policies. We, we don't want, no, we don't need um, continually fighting over misconceptions and, and misunderstandings. We need to move forward or it's none of it will matter because we're not here anymore. That's true. Uh, so what, what you're saying is we have to move this topic further from the taboo area in our brains and start having meaningful conversations ba based on real tangible facts, yeah. based on real evidence instead of, oh, I feel bad about it. Exactly. I don't like this well, here. They're, they're, nuclear has problems. We just talked about all of the different yeah. ways uh, you heard it, that nuclear is a dangerous uh, technology, yeah. but it's not one that we can't control. You know, we have learned how to do that. And I think we're going to get into a little bit more of that here yeah. in a second. So much of the conversation is based on like fairy tales and, and things that people are dreaming up. It's misinformation. Anecdotes, basically. Anecdotes, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of the, the real information gets lost in the discussion. Our whole podcast are talking about epistemology, mm -hmm. right? It's how do people know things? And in, unfortunately, I think this is one of those topics where Real uh, science, real evidence gets completely covered up by emotion and misinformation and misunderstanding. I mean, some of these people stand up and, and complain about nuclear and don't understand anything about how it actually works. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's human. It's very human nature to be afraid of something you don't understand. Uh, yeah. uh, unfortunately, we have people who don't understand it and... Uh, <laughs> Not unfortunately, fortunately. Fortunately, sorry, yeah. Fortunate, fortunately. Fortunately, we have people who do understand it and they're not getting a chance to be heard. It's changing. And I think that what we're about to get into and, and the next topic is going to show that the technology did not stop. Yeah. We did keep going, yeah, uh, which yeah. is good. And let's check that out. It's actually a fascinating conversation where we go deep into what actually changed in the last 60 years in development in nuclear energy. Yeah, this is good stuff. Uh, this is the really good this stuff. This is really good stuff. Yeah. All right, let's go. Is there any advancement in the, the fuel itself? Because we that sounds it sounds a lot like we're using the same kind of technology since we started. But is there anything that's changed in the last little bit that maybe would suggest there's a better fuel for us to use? For the existing reactors, and, and maybe for the future generations, even those that are based on uranium, it's I'm not a very big specialist, but uh, I know people are working on what we call um, accident-tolerant fuel. ATF. Mm. So uh, it's a uh, it's fuel. It's it's still uranium or maybe with plutonium, 
but it has a different chemical form or maybe it's produced or it's fabricated differently, which means it won't uh, probably degrade as fast and it won't release as much reactive material in case of an accident. Mm. Now, I see where you are coming with this because I saw the questions. Uh, <laughs> there is also the possibility for thorium to, to be used as fuel for, uh, to generate uh, elect- nuclear power and electricity, con- consequently. Why thorium? Because, um, well, it's much more abundant on Earth than, uh, well, at least in the Earth's, uh, Earth's crust than uranium. India is just basically lying on huge thorium reserves. As far as I know, they are the pioneers uh, in this uh, domain, in this field, the thorium reactors. Also, thorium is uh, less susceptible to produce fissile matter for for bombs. What we call for, it's it's a good material for non-proliferation. The the technical term uh, would be. (laughs) Um, And thorium could be used in what they call molten salt reactors. So the fuel is not solid. It's in a liquid state. It's a special chemical compound. I think it's, uh, well, I won't go into the t- details, but it's a it's, it's in, a, in a liquid form. And what they suggest is that because it's liquid and, uh, well, a liquid, you can move it around. You can basically attach a reprocessing plant next to your power plant. So you can recycle uh, your fuel, eliminate the, the dangerous fission products online in a continuous cycle. I don't know how good uh, this is because as a concept, obviously, it's uh, it's uh, very good. But again, then again, the industrial implementation, uh, it's another thing. Maybe they can prove it in a lab with uh, hundred, maybe several kilos or 100 kilos of fuel. But on an, on an, uh, when you scale up from uh, 100 kilos to 100 tons, it's another challenge. And uh, mostly these challenges evolve around the, um, the radiation safety issues. That's also, for example, uh, one of the reasons why uh, we don't recycle um, the 4% of the, uh, of the um, dangerous of waste. It's uh, because it has been demonstrated in a lab but to scale it up to a factory size, it would be very, very expensive. So it's just easier to, to bury it underground. So it's the same with the thorium. I know the concept, it's promising. But if, as I said in the beginning, the economy of nuclear energy is also an, a very important aspect of, of the whole uh, problem. or the yeah. yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I think this is coming into our third section of questions that we prepared for you, Daryl. In essence, building a nuclear power plant is quite expensive, right? It takes years to make it running. And it also takes sometimes even decades before that power plant will break even, so to speak. So we stumbled upon technology that is called SMRs or small modular reactors for those who don't know the nomenclature. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and that seems like a very interesting like alternative solution instead of building large power plants, building smaller nuclear reactors. In your opinion, is this technology worth pursuing in general or you see some flaws in the underlying theory? When I first heard about uh, SMRs, the small modular reactors, I think it was about 10 years ago. And the idea seemed very interesting. But then people were saying, oh, nobody's going to build them because there is no market. Now, however, it's been maybe 
two or three years, everybody is talking about them again. Even in France, there have been some ideas, some conceptual ideas to develop an SMR. And it seems like people are taking them seriously. The advantage that I see with SMRs to answer to a question, is it flawed or not? I think, but this is true for all the reactors that are going to, that are being built now and in the future compared to the, react, the reactors that exist now. But the advantage for SMRs is that we have a lot of feedback from operating power plants in terms of operation, but also in terms of safety. We've had sadly three accidents per power plants and some smaller incidents on different other installations. And these accidents allowed to, well, to enhance the safety of existing power plants by modifying, adding things. But for the new power plants, where they be the big ones the, or the small ones, it's good because we can integrate the, the safety from the design. So uh, they are safe and uh, they are designed to withstand a lot more accidental situations than the actual reactors, which back in the 70s, we didn't know uh, much about accidental situations. So the SMRs, uh, they can benefit from this feedback and they can be rendered safe from their design. Today, when a new reactor is being designed, where it be SMR or a big one, they try to introduce what they call passive safety options. Passive, which means does not require the intervention of the human. Or, for example, does not necessarily require electricity. Things that work with natural convection, natural airflow. For example, for Fukushima, where you lost both power and the backup power from the diesels, that's the problem. So today's reactors, they are designed so as so as not to rely or in, in the ultimate disaster scenario, not to rely on human and other technology. They can mitigate the consequences of an, of an accident in a passive way. So with natural, involving natural phenomena. So starting from this point, uh, SMRs are not necessarily flawed. On the contrary, they do actually cover a, I wouldn't call this a market, but there is a need sometimes for smaller amounts of energy. What are the advantages of the SMRs? Well, why it's called small modular reactor? Small because typically it has a smaller energy out power output than a classical power plant. Mm-hmm. It can be five to 10 times smaller and modular because the idea behind them is to produce them like a car, make it very standardized, produce them in a factory and then ship them and basically pre-installed on the spot. Like plug and play, basically. Exactly. So uh, this could be, this could prove efficient for remote areas, which don't have reliable power supplies. And it is pretty much the case. There is a, uh, I'll bring an example, then I'll come back to what I was saying. The Russians have launched a ship. I think it's an icebreaker, which has two SMRs, basically. And they use it to power up cities in the far north, which have problems being powered in energy. It's not a ship per se, it's a floating barge with two (laughs) nuclear reactors. And uh, they move, you think, uh, based on uh, demand, I, I presume. And it's been, I think it's been, it's been on float for two or three years now. It literally shipped nuclear power to the town. Exactly. That's nice. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. Another advantage, well, I checked it, but I also uh, thought of it, is that when you have smaller pre-made based reactors with the passive safety systems, you can reduce a lot of the staff operating the reactor. So you will require less manpower and time to train the operators because it's also a, a, an important aspect. 
and uh, having to, or rather not having to take care of, uh, in detail about nuclear power plant, it's an advantage for, for, for countries who cannot afford or don't have the infrastructure for this kind of uh, training. Also, another advantage that they boast is that, well, obviously, there are different designs for small modular reactors, and they're basically the same as the big reactors. You have uh, the ones working the same as the modern plants, but just they are miniaturized. They're the ones that work with fast neutrons, like the ones which allow to burn the 4% waste. There are propositions for with molten salt reactors, uh, although I haven't seen many, but they're there. I mean, the fuel you can do basically... Anything the same as with the big reactors, you just have to figure how to make it small and safe. And with small reactors, uh, reducing the one of the boasted uh, advantages is also that it prevents nuclear non-proliferation. In fact, in these small reactors, they can go without changing the fuel for several years. And by the time you have to change the fuel, it has changed so much, it is no longer usable, for example, to make a nuclear bomb. It contains so much impurities that it's very expensive to make a nuclear bomb out of this. Obviously, well, you can always make uh, what they call a dirty a dirt bomb. Mm-hmm. With, uh, uh, but that's another subject. But uh, for nuclear no proliferation, they, they work well. And yes, because they are smaller, you can make them potentially in batch. Their price sh- also should be much lower than uh, conventional nuclear power plants, mm-hmm. and uh, you could build them uh, much quicker. Yeah, that was kind of to, to your point about thorium, because it was it's not part of the manufacturing chain. There's not, you know, all the things you need to actually get to a point where you have a usable fuel. Yes. Um, we did we haven't built that up. But if you can start from the mass manufactured situation, it's much easier to get to that cost point that makes it viable. It's the efficiencies of of, of scale. But yeah, yeah. Once we get to a point where we're producing it, I actually saw that um, this is one of Bill Gates's ventures, mm-hmm. and he's got a company called TerraPower that's doing exactly this. They're okay. um, manufacturing right now SMRs, and Wyoming, of all places, <laughs> has a town that's going to be the first one to accept its first SMR. So we're looking at you know sometime soon having this in real life, which is fantastic. I think that's Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Bill and Melinda Gates. Not not just Bill Gates. Don't give the credit to the guy. (laughs) Fair enough. Is it still Bill and Melinda Gates, though? Foundation? (laughs) Yeah, that's another story. Let's go into gossip, right? But the foundation is still named after them both. So it's it's what brought also the polio vaccine to, to Africa at one point. And they've done a lot of good. And this just happens to be one of them, which is surprising. But yeah, it's... It's uh, all, all the points that you talked about and, and all the, the reasons why it works out well, they're really pushing. And it seems like um, a lot of markets, it's like you said, within the last two to three years, that the, the comments around SMRs have really picked up. And it looks like the market has decided, yeah, we're going to start pumping these bad boys out because there's just a, there's maybe a dozen companies that are um, uh, building these things. Yes, exactly. So. I know that in France, we didn't speak a lot because, well, where I work, we have a department which studies prospective reactor types and future reactors and so on. And uh, when I came, I'm pretty sure they weren't talking about SMRs. And in the last two, three years, France has come up with three designs. Well, different companies in France has come up with three designs. Uh, So I'm quite generally surprised. I'm uh, happy that uh, France is stepping up on the market. But uh, yeah, it seems to be, well, I wouldn't say the future, but 
people seem to be steering in this direction. I think every every small modular reactor that allows us to turn off a coal plant is definitely the future. Yeah. Um, this is this is the way to go. But I also, you know, it's part of what we were trying to, I think, talk through this entire conversation, which is a lot of the misconceptions were based on kind of bad principles. But the things that really were holding nuclear power back, our current ideas and technologies and designs have solved. But we're still being weighed down by this general public mistrust yes. of anything nuclear. And it's, and it's really sad because we actually have solved a lot of the problems that we have. Yes, and, indeed. And For me, the biggest problem right now is what to do with the spent uh, nuclear fuel. Well, specifically with the waste, because in France, we recycle the fuel. But the ultimate waste, this is the big problem. But there are solutions. Some of them have been abandoned, sadly. And it's, again, an issue with the society. Because they rightly think, but again, they probably not are very well informed. They don't want nuclear waste stored under their feet. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Not, not in my backyard, yes. as they say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think one of the fears there is also what you said, like the, the idea with the clay deposits. The biggest problem is groundwater, right? When that yes. can corrupt the sarcophagus of the nuclear fuel or the waste and then we'll leak that into groundwater and then we'll poison may not even be the nation that actually buried it right it could be buried in france but in one point go to spain or any other neighboring yes. country yeah well but i mean if you get to a place where you're more willing to talk about it because I, I you you brought up the, the yakima mountain yes. i think is what it's called that it was held up for decades because of a lot of the political uh, frustrations, you know, people fighting against it, not here. And then I even heard politicians talk about the solution to the problem, just leave it where it is. Like they, they kept saying, just don't don't move it from the, the, the uh, reactor, just leave it outside. It's fine where it is. Yeah. Kind of it's very short-sighted, oh, yeah. uh, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Daryl, huge thank you from here at Now That's Interesting and for your time and your knowledge. Yeah, fantastic talk. Absolutely amazing stuff. Thank yeah. you for having me. It's been a pleasure. So that was quite a roller coaster, yep, right? That was some good stuff. <laughs> that was really good stuff. No, I, I love the I love this topic because it, it really hits on home to the idea that we make progress. You know, things generally get better. Yeah. And and we some of this this discussion is based on seventies era nuclear power and we got modern things that are hip, cool, and new, right? Yeah. And, and okay, not everything shiny is better, but these are objectively better. These, true, are, these true. they objectively took the problems, the real problems, not the the misconception, the misperceived, mm -hmm. and worked on it, made it better. Especially the idea that things should be able to passively shut down. You know, these SMR technologies. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to a human being. Like they 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 literally can't melt down because the structure of it itself. In, like when something goes wrong, power shuts out or something like that, you're dropping into water, you're using gravity 
or some form of other physical phenomenon that shuts the thing off. Yeah, uh, you're, you're literally removing the human factor. And that's the beauty and, of it. And yeah. you're making the system simpler. Robust. Yeah. And yeah. robust, yeah. yeah. And as software engineers, former. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> always in my heart. <laughs> always in my heart, right. But we always know the bland fact of it, that the simpler a system less issues it has. Yeah, right? exactly. The, the moment you introduce even one bit of complexity, you introduce a, a plethora of problems, right? Yeah, and that's nothing, br- nothing brings complexity like having a human get involved. <laughs> oh, yes. That's like, I think that discussion really touches on this idea that that's what we're moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's exciting because, uh, you know, it's unfortunate in my mind that we have to rely on the billionaire philanthropists to really help us push these directions like mm-hmm. Bill Gates and and whatnot. But I'm glad it's happening. I'm glad we're making progress yeah. and we've got investment into these into these technologies. So that's my next question to you, Travis. Do you think that we should focus all of our energy on nuclear? I'm so glad you asked that question, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, didn't think, oh, that's such a fantastic random question that you came up with. Obviously, or maybe it's not obvious, no, I don't think you put all your eggs in one basket here, right? Mm-hmm. And, you, and that's for both sides of the argument because there's there are arguments being made that we shouldn't even work on nuclear because look at this great re- renewable energy systems we have with uh, solar, solar and wind, and wind yeah. and geothermal. But the the problem is these things, they're not great everywhere, no. right? It's not always sunny. The wind is not always blowing. Um, but nuclear physics always works. Yeah. <laughs> well, is... a great example was actually about they took the states and analyzed where would be the best places to put a wind farm. The problem with a wind farm, like when you put a bunch of windmills and generate power from that, you cannot put it everywhere. There are places where wind is better, right? Yeah. That's yeah. why it works in the Netherlands. We have windmills uh, along our coastlines because we have a lot of wind. It's always windy. It's always windy, <laughs> right? We we touched upon that in the last episode. Yeah. But uh, and but we are a small country here, and it's easier for us to channel that that energy back into the grid, yeah. and so on. With the states, which continental states, it's a huge yeah. area massive of space. land, massive space, and there's only a couple of really good places where you would place, yeah, and then, uh, these uh, grids, these farms, and so on. And then you'll have to expand somehow this to the coastlines and to New with York. The, and, with like the coal plants and things, mm-hmm. you, you literally can just put that anywhere. You don't need geography to put a coal plant down, right? And yeah. so what they did was they would put them near city centers because mm-hmm. that's where the power would need to be generated. Yeah. And then you kind of pump it out to the rural areas because it, and, you know that's, that's where more power needs to be generated. Mm-hmm. Wind and solar almost inverts that paradigm where yeah. where you get wind and solar is not where people are living. Yeah. So we have to build it, we have to generate it and then send it out to the coast. Whereas SMRs can do exactly this. The coal plants do. You just plop them down where you need power. Yeah. Um, you reduce, you're more efficient, you reduce transmission lines, you reduce the loss of power over mm-hmm. distances because we're talking about conservation of, of mass and energy and, mm-hmm. and the law of thermodynamics. Energy, it's it's being reduced as it goes through the lines. You have to yeah, generate yeah. more power than you actually need just so you can shove it out to the, the distance. Yeah, yeah. And SMRs, they fix that problem quite handily. And then there is also the refueling aspect of it. Some of these that are getting built, the fuel they require goes for 20 years, goes for decades, these mm-hmm. things last. So they literally would build, bury them, 
bury them into the ground, mm-hmm. and then dig them up after 20 years. That's a crazy uh, investment because you're just it just runs, uh, yeah, just generating power. Maybe there are some things that we aren't thinking through, like how we actually manufacture them. The idea of it coming off of an assembly line is pretty, you know, uh, it's a wonderful thought, but is it true? Can we actually do this? Is it safe? These are great questions that we need to start asking, or we need to we need the opportunity to ask. And I feel like, again, like we talked about earlier, we're not even allowed to have these discussions because some people are so involved in, in, in stopping the project mm-hmm. on, like, emotional levels and, and not, not fundamental physics levels. Yeah, yeah. Well... Let's hope that at least this episode will change a few people's minds. Yeah, I hope so. And other people working in, in this field will bring the message to home. I really enjoyed our first guest speaker. You yeah. Know? I would also like to thank Daryl Obade for sacrificing some of his time and energy to do this chat and share his knowledge with us. Yeah, very much appreciated. Anytime he wants to come back and talk about nuclear, he can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we hope you enjoyed it. If you have any comments, suggestions, pr- please reach out. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for Now That's Interesting Podcast or Tweet NTI. We would love to hear some, some of your feedback. We love the feedback. We love questions. Give us your thoughts. And uh, yeah, like it, subscribe, I guess. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> and if the feeling really takes you, we would really appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform that allows reviewing and subscribing and so on. It goes a long way yep. for us. We always appreciate it. Yeah. And with that, we also have to mention That's Not Canon, <laughs> which we're part of. And about around this time, we will insert a clip from one of our co-patriots. Oh, yeah. Insert clip here. Hi, I'm Abby, and this is Alan. Hello. We're from the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast, where we explore the history of horror and modern horror storytelling. We do deep dives into legends like ghost trains or the Headless Horseman or Wendigos. Available wherever you listen to podcasts including cell phones and computers. Stay curious and see you next time. Bye. That's Not Kind of Productions podcast.